I, that's what, that's why I love stories. I love that you keep going back there because stories, stories are everything. It's the meaning we give to facts. That's what a story is. There are facts that happen. And the story is the, the dots that we connect. And 90% of the time, the problems that we have in our head are the stories that we're telling ourselves about it. The story is that I'm weak. Prove it. If, if I was asked to prove that on paper, I couldn't prove that I'm weak. Look at all the things that I've accomplished. I'm not weak. But there was a story in my head that I allowed to keep playing in myself. And when I believed it, I had to act out. That was Ellie Nash. And this is The Recovery Revolution. It's time for the Recovery Revolution podcast, and it is unlike any recovery podcast you will ever experience. This is next-level recovery transformation featuring the most influential minds in addiction, recovery, sobriety, mindset, and entrepreneurship. We are transforming the stereotypical mundane process of recovery into one of finding your own personal path to empowerment. This podcast will revolutionize the way you look, feel, and talk about recovery. This is The Recovery Revolution. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Recovery Revolution. And today we have Ellie Nash joining us on the show. And Ellie has become an incredible friend and mentor. He's the co-founder of Mic Drop, where I held my first public speaking engagement in Miami. And today, Ellie is here to share with us his battle with sex addiction and porn addiction. But before we dive into Ellie's story, on May 30th of this month, this episode launches May 28th, so two days from now is a special event held in Miami at the Mic Drop Theater titled Empowered Parenting in the Porn Age with Benny Schoenfeld. So if you live in Miami, Florida, and you're interested in attending, go to Ellie's show notes at omarpinto.com. And on Ellie's show notes, I will have a link to the event, Empowered Parenting in the Porn Age. And here's a quick interview I did with Benny about the upcoming event. Benny, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Omar. How are you today? Doing fantastic, buddy. I'm doing fantastic. So, folks, today I've got Benny Schoenfeld joining me right now. And really what we wanted to do really quickly is introduce you to what's coming up on May the 30th. And instead of me explaining it, I figured I'd just get Benny on here and he can tell us all about it. So Benny, tell us a little bit about what you've got coming up on May 30th and what's the purpose. Absolutely. And thank you so much really for getting with me and, and this opportunity to, to spread the message a little bit. Coming up on May 30th is my next talk and it's entitled Empowered Parenting in the Porn Age. And the objective of this talk, it's specifically designed for parents who have children eight and plus. And what we want to do is educate them, inform them, and empower them with practical tools in order to be able to face the reality of pornography, internet pornography, how, how it can affect them, their relationships, and especially their children. So what we want to do is give people tools in order to be effective parents and responsible parents at this critical time. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, and so that's going to be on May 30th at what time? May 30th at 7 p.m. at the Mic Drop Theater in Miami, Florida. Now let's dive into Ellie's episode, but first, a quick message from our sponsors. We are all addicted to something. Money, success, food, drugs, alcohol, and even our problems. These addictions hold us back 
and prevent us from tapping into our greatness. My name's Omar Pinto, and I'm a life transformation coach, addiction recovery specialist, and lifestyle entrepreneur. I help people transform their business, family, and personal life every single day. So if you want to find out what's holding you back from living a life of fulfillment, success, and happiness, go to www.omarpinto.com and schedule a free consultation with me today. It's time to transform your life. Today's episode is brought to you by the RRC, the Recovery Revolution Community. The RRC is our private recovery membership group that features online meetings, online support, accountability, peer-to-peer recovery support, and coaching. The Recovery Revolution is more than just a podcast. It is a support network helping thousands of people all over the world. So for more information about the Recovery Revolution podcast or how you can join the RRC, then go to omarpinto.com and get plugged into the Recovery Revolution today. And if you haven't done so already, be sure to leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It's the best way to show your support for the podcast. Hey, Ellie, thanks for joining us. Hey, Omar, thanks for having me. I am excited to have you on the show, brother. How you feeling? Good. Tell me why you're excited. I am excited because this is going to be a topic that we don't normally cover. And Ellie is willing to be vulnerable and open. For those of you out there, you'll know what I'm talking about very soon, who really need to hear hope on this side of addiction. So um, that's why I'm excited, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so first of all, we have Ellie Nash joining us on the show. Ellie is the CEO of JEG & Sons, Inc. and the co-founder of Mic Drop. Eli founded JEG & Sons in 2006 to bring no-contract and unlocked phones to U.S. e-tailers and retailers. And today, Eli is here to share with us his journey of recovery from sex addiction. There it is. As Ellie held the details of his own abuse secret for many years, Ellie is passionate about empowering others to speak up and to use their voice to be an agent of change in their community. In 2018, Ellie founded Mic Drop, a public speaking training program with an emphasis on those who could not imagine speaking publicly uh, as a way to channel his passion for empowering others on his way. Sound about right there, Ellie? Sounds about right. All right. Nailed it. All right. So... I want to dive into this story, but first of all, let's talk about Ellie today. Tell us about what your normal daily routine looks like. So normal daily routine today, I get up, try to get up around 6.30, pray, and hit the gym. That's where it starts. Love it. So, you know, recovery isn't a, uh, a perfect process in any way whatsoever. Something that I'm struggling with now is I feel like I'm a problem solver. And when I got a problem in my life, I focus on fixing it. So things like um, a lot of anxiety. So my tools will be meditation or prayer, stuff like that. Now that I'm feeling a lot less of that, I'm less motivated and less inclined. So I'm actually, that's kind of where I am right now is I feel like I'm motivated when I have a problem to fix versus motivated by possibility. And that's my biggest focus right now. How do I motivate myself from the fact that there's so much more that I can do versus something that's falling apart that I need to fix? Well, for the way that can go ahead, go ahead. 
I was the way that connects to routine is a year ago, my routine was very different. I was waking up about an hour before that and steeped in journaling, meditation, and prayer because I was dealing with a lot of anxiety. And not that, not it's just like a five or 10 minute prayer and, uh, and off to the gym. Well, for many of us, me included, that has been a struggle. I'm 48 years old. And, you know, the whole idea of prayer and meditation, I've been in recovery for 16 years and coming up on 16 years. And so that's, it's always, right? Like, oh, you got to meditate. You got 11 tradition or 11, 11 step and this and this and that, right? And then I, you, you, there's pain and, okay, I got to meditate. I got to do my, the usual, right? So get on track. The silence, the peace comes in and then one day you forget about it and then it's off, it's off the radar. So the question here is, what's my why? Before it was, dude, I've got anxiety. You know, like right. this, this devastating, tremendous, I wake up in fear, right? So the, here's my why. Now, I do, I've done some research on, on meditation and all the different hormones that it releases when you're in the meditative state, plus connecting you to that higher consciousness which for me right now is like, I'm in this like stage of trying to be more creative. I'm trying to come up with different, different ideas, different concepts. So there's this creativity and I'm stuck all the time, right? Because I'm always like in my own head about, oh, this is going to suck and I'm not good enough and blah, blah, blah. I'm not a writer, blah, blah, blah. So the, I, the meditation allows you to channel that connection. So there is like, there has to be an end result. I mean, I'm... I'm an addict, right? At, at, at the core, there's something inside of me that needs some sort of, you know, gratification. Yeah, need, there needs to be some sort of payout. It needs to make sense. And that's, and listen, whatever it takes to get there. But for me, it's like, okay, I want to get creative. So I'm going to do this for 10 minutes. I, oh, oh cortisol levels? Oh, it, level, it, it, it levels off your cortisol levels. It levels off your melatonin levels, right? It, it helps restore your um, adrenal glands, you know, the stress. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's, that's new information. New information. Oh, this is cool. So now I'm just this cool guy that knows some, like, meditation hacks. It, whatever it takes, right? <laughs> I, I kind of wonder if it helps get me from a one- to an eight, and I only want to use a one because I can't go below one, right? So on this score, we only have one to an eight. Can it take me from an eight to, you know, what's what's possible there? That's that's what I wonder, but I don't have the same uh, motivation, like you said. Yeah, it's really everything is about creating that motiv- motivation, right? It's like I got I to gotta start with the end in mind because if I don't, I'll lose my way. I'll lose my way. I'm like, this is hard. This is boring. This is, I got other things to do. But, you know, we create, and trust me, man, I'm speaking to myself right now. This is not, I'm not like, I don't have the chalkboard out. And like, this is how we do things here, right? Like, this is, you know. <laughs> That's actually what I love about recovery. Because in the therapy model, it's not like, okay, I'm the therapist and I got to figure it out and let me give you my insight. And in the recovery model is, listen, we've all screwed up, but we're not all screwed up at the same, at the same time. So let's let's try to help each other. And when when you have somebody holding you accountable, it makes it easier too, right? Like, uh, do, you med- do you meditate today? Oh, dude. Okay, tomorrow, tomorrow. Okay, right. It's it's really sometimes only that simple. Yep. 
All right, so let's talk a little bit quickly about your spiritual condition because that's that's usually part of the daily routine is like I meditate and this and this and that, but there's also this component of spirituality. Some people have you know a little resistance to it. Some people are all about it, but everyone seems to have a different take on it. What's your take on spirituality and how do you maintain your 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 conscious contact with your higher power? So for me, the biggest block to spirituality has been, I mean, the book of AA says this, the big book says it, about resentments. So every evening, um, I say a prayer with my son. He's only nine months, so I don't think he understands it, but I do. Um, and it's an ancient, like a 500-year-old Hebrew prayer. And it says, you know, I hereby forgive anybody who's wronged me, anyone who's done anything wrong, and they shouldn't be punished on my behalf, and kind of a, a prayer to clear myself of any resentments. And I think of that to try to let go. That's one thing I do. Another thing is I'm fortunate to be in a place where there's a meeting every single day, just a few blocks away from my home. My goal is to go every single day, which gets me there about three or four times a week. And I really try not to go three days without a meeting. You know, I was someone who says I'm, I'm not a slow learner. I'm a quick forgetter. Yes. Yes. And I, I, I get all that. I get all that. It's really, everything is about repetition. And the more times I do it, the more it kind of gets ingrained in, in the tissues. Um, so how much, how much clean time do you have or sobriety time? Or I'm not quite sure how you classify it all. You know, how do you classify yeah. sobriety, recovery? It's a little different. Right. It's a little different in this addiction because you're not trying to be, um, it's kind of like a food addiction. You're not trying to stay away from it completely. So it's more kind of negotiated with your sponsor is uh-huh. probably the best way to say it and figuring out exactly what it is that's addictive and what's not discuss over time. I've been in recovery for six years. March 29th will be six years. Awesome. Wonderful. So, and in terms of clean time, about two and a half years, which is pretty awesome. So Beautiful. they say in, uh, in our program, they call it a, it's a program of slips. It's not, it's not something you hear someone come in and say, Hey, I got, you know, it's, it's not like alcohol and, and uh, drugs in the sense – you ever heard the saying 99% a bitch? <laughs> no, I haven't. Like, my- it's, it's pretty easy to like, – I don't know if you fast ever, but if you do fasting, so it's pretty easy to say – you know, what? Once. I've done it for five what? days once, right? And So you fast. Then you say, you know, I'm just not. You wake up in the morning. The decision's yeah. made. I'm not touching any food, and no it's pretty food. easy. But if, if I told you to have one cookie, that's 99% a bitch. It's really tough. A hundred percent is easy. Ninety-nine percent is where it gets tough. So in this program, it it does get a little bit dicey because when someone's going on the other side of that, that's sexual anorexia, and that's not good. Saying like, you know, I'm never going to have sex. I'm never going to masturbate. I'm never going to do anything because I don't want to do anything wrong. It's like, okay, what's what's that about? What's that addiction to? Very true. In the same way, right? Very very similar to food. So it's more about establishing a healthy relationship with sexuality versus cutting it off completely. Yeah, no, I uh, I applaud you, and I, I I can only equate that to the the food example, which is yeah, the thought of like holy cow, like so I've got this 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 negotiated clean structure, right? This is this is how I'm this is how I'm going to practice recovery, right? But you know, it's all, like you say, you know, I'm eating this cookie, okay? So you can have one cookie once a month. Right, that's your sugar allotment, and then anything above that is is a relapse, right? And I'm eating one cookie, like, what's the point, right? And it, so it's got to be kind of like the same. It's like, dude, I can't get freaky, you know what I mean? Like, okay, you know, I mean, I don't even know what that looks like, right? And and this is, you know, me me just 
you know, having a little fun here, but trying to understand the humanness that we have and how imperfect we are as we introduce these things into our system. I know if I had a beer tomorrow, I would be just, it's, I, to be honest right. with you, I don't even know. I'm terrified to think. So there are certain things that we're able to put in the bucket of it's never healthy, right? There's never a moment. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm feeling like, you know, it would be a healthy expression of my sexuality if I hired a prostitute tonight. That's not right. There's no intimacy. There's no connection. There's it's not. So there are certain things that we can say, okay, these for sure belong in that bucket of absolute no go. And that makes it clear. But then there's the other part where, yeah, cutting it off completely and saying I'm not having any sex, that's not a that's not a solution. No. So and I imagine in food addiction there is um I, I don't have much experience, but I imagine there are certain foods that someone can say these are off limits for me completely. But there's also a way to gorge on uh on lettuce or avocados, I imagine. I don't know. There certainly is with healthy sexuality. I have yet to come across that one. I have come, uh, I have, I mean, I've heard a lot of things, Ellie. <sighs> wow. So I'm on my, I'm on my 18th head of lettuce and I'm just, I'm out of control. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully we can get someone in the program. I imagine that's a really tough program. I imagine that's. Yeah. Well, I'm just, you know, stay away from the packaged goods, man. The ding dongs and Twinkies and the cookies. That's what's going to hit you. I'm assuming that those are probably going to be the more non-negotiables. Right. But even in terms of, um, you know, sex addiction, the the question for me, and it's a program where you really got to be honest with yourself and saying, did I just use that to escape or did I use that to connect with someone? Beautiful. Like, what was that? What was that for? And, you know, it can totally be my wife. I can get to a place in my head where I'm there doing the same thing, but where I am in my head is not a good place. And... You know, usually no 20, 30 minutes later, if you want to go back for more, kind of want to escalate like any addiction, right? One is too many, a thousand is not enough. If that one triggers a response for a lot more, you know, okay, what it, what happened there? And then just, just being honest. I mean, that's, that's more important than anything else is being honest. And creating, and, and we, creating that awareness. Like that's, those questions are about creating tremendous awareness, it's just a constant, like, what is the highest intention of this? Yeah, and that's true in any, in any program, I yep. imagine, because addictions, uh, addictions come in more than one. I've heard it said addiction comes, comes in threes, but, you know, it's very easy. I tell you, half the people in our program have come there from AA and NA, and then they get to the sex inventory with their sponsor and like, holy shit, what was that? <laughs> you slept with how many people and how many names do you know? Right. So when you start, you know, when it, when they start listing out their sex inventory, it becomes person one and person two and person three. And it's like, you don't even know their names and you had sex with them and they're that many. Maybe you belong in the, pro maybe you belong in the room next door. But I also know that there's a lot of, um, a lot of judgment within the recovery community around sex addiction. It's one of the reasons I speak because I hope to give hope and a voice to those people. We had someone who recently started. Um, coming to our meetings, who was over 20 years in AA. And when he first started the, in, in the building, there's meetings for AA and, you know, CODA and all these other stuff. And there's, um, um, uh, there's a 
also for S programs, right? The sex programs. Mm -hmm. And he chose to drive 40 minutes to another meeting so that his buddies in AA don't see him coming to our meeting. Yes. Yes. And that, when I heard that story, that struck me and said, wow, you know, there's even within the recovery community, there isn't a lot of understanding around uh, sex addiction. And it's for one of the, it was one of the events that happened that said, Hey, I got to speak about this. And fortunately my wife is supportive for me talking about the subject and, uh, and here I am. Well, good, good. Um, and I would just kind of segue in that particular aspect, because I think it's just, it all boils down to our humanness, right? And just how frail we are and how we look at things in the moment. There was a time where, you know, sneaking into an AA meeting was oh, sure. very much a part of trying to get sober. I don't, I'm going to go to a different city. I'm going to go to a different town so nobody sees me walk into an AA meeting because I don't want anyone to see me. I don't want to be identified as an alcoholic. So I think that as the years go on, stigmas, stigmas change based on exactly what we're doing here is bringing more awareness and more light to it. I think stories change stigmas. Yeah. That personal stories of people change stigmas because it's it's so easy to – demonize someone until you know them until you hear their story and say you know i you know this this is my story i'm a sex addict but when i tell you my story hey i was introduced to sex at eight years old by a family friend which decided to lock me in a room and use my eight-year-old body to reach orgasm so it's not really surprising and it's not a question of blaming him or not it's just not really surprising that i ended up with an unhealthy relationship with sex Absolutely. As a matter of fact, let's just dive right in. After that, caveat, <laughs> let's go right in. So my next question is, how has addiction affected your life? And then ultimately, what has it cost you? So please tell, tell us your story. Oh, so if I fast forward to, to that part, I got into the, the therapy and self-improvement world because I was lending people money who I knew wouldn't pay me back. I was investing in things I knew would work. And I, just, I saw it affecting my business. And my business was meant to be my ticket out. I mean, we talk about different higher powers and we make alcohol our higher power or we make sex our higher power. Money is certainly one of my higher powers. And when I saw that I just wasn't able to keep it, because I didn't have the ability to stand up for myself, assert myself and say, no, I don't want to do what you're asking me to do. I started reading a little bit and eventually I ended up in a therapist's office. And from there, uh, if you ever have a therapist on the program, or maybe, you know, there's, I guess, some sort of correlation between people who have a, a difficulty asserting themselves and abuse that, that, and going through abuse perhaps specifically sexual abuse, because as soon as I shared my story with him, not my story, the challenges I was having, he asked me if I was sexually abused. He was the first person who ever asked me and the first person I told. And that started a whole journey on um, kind of coming to terms with the pain of that and dealing with the way abuse affected me and so on. Over the next five years, there were things introduced to me like, Hey, I may be a sex addict. Hey, I, this, Hey, but I, I repelled that idea very strongly. 
And one of the reasons why is because I always had a strong judgment for alcoholics, drug addicts, anyone. I just, I looked down on them and said, you know, they can't control themselves. What is this? Um, and, you know, I, I grew up in a very religious and Orthodox Jewish community. And there was almost nothing, no outlet that was allowed. There was nothing you were allowed to do. Like rollerblading, rollerblading is, is no good, right? There's just something that's not okay with it. Um, listening to certain kinds of music, that's also not okay. But at a very young age, alcohol was okay. So even like 13, 14 years old, if you're getting smashed, it's like, oh, it's religious almost. It's like, you know, <laughs> there's a religious, there's, there's a Jewish law that says there's no happiness, there's no joy, there's no celebration without wine. And that's great. So every festive meal has wine. Yeah. Um, and there are restrictions on getting drunk, but for whatever reason, those don't quite always make it out. And this was one outlet that was allowed. And even though it was there, it wasn't something I went to. Not only was it allowed, I'd say there was a part of it that was even subtly encouraged. In, uh, have you ever heard the expression to say l'chaim? I've heard of it. L'chaim, right? So l'chaim means to life. And it's like a toast, right? So I'll say, say l'chaim. So l'chaim. say l'chaim, basically. Right. Take a drink and say to life, right? Like it's a toast, say a toast. And this was, Hey, did you say L'chaim yet? You're sitting at a meal. Did you say L'chaim yet? Did you do this? And I almost felt like someone was telling me what to do. So I resisted it and I said, no. And I didn't go, you know, I didn't get into the whole drinking. I didn't get into the drugging. And when I saw people there, I was like, okay, these people have no self-control and you know, what's wrong with them. So when I, when it, when someone mentioned that, Hey, you know, porn twice a day is, probably not much better than alcohol. At first, I resisted it pretty strongly. In a lot of ways, my bottom was figuring out, accepting the fact that I'm, I'm an addict. Where What I really lost as a result was it started encroaching on my business, which I promised it never would, like never on a work computer and never affecting a meeting, but it obviously did. And um, when I got into a relationship... And I realized that I just I did not have the ability to stay faithful, not for 72 hours. It just wasn't possible for me to stay faithful. That that's when I realized, okay, this is a real, real, real problem for me, and I got to get it under wraps. And it's not until we try to stop a behavior that we figure out how much control it has over us. And it kicked my ass for the next year and a half, and then eventually got into recovery. So, you know, there was a part in there where you talked about your childhood. So... What was it that happened in your childhood that eventually later on, and how, how long did that go on? Was it just one altercation or was it more? You know, what was that childhood experience like? That, and when did it stop? And then how long was there like this time? Did you block it out after a while? You know, was it always there? How did that happen? So it happened a lot more than once. Uh, when I, it's, it's interesting. You know, when I, if I looked at what I, the way I described it 10 years ago, like the first time I was in the therapist's office, it would have been something like I had a perfect childhood and then one day this guy abused me and then, you know, derailed me. And then I kept going back for more for the next two or three years until eventually we weren't in the same town. Uh, but when I look back at it now, that's not completely true. I know there's a, a journey of accepting our parents and our parents' frailties and just understanding that they're not perfect. They don't have to be. The journey of adulthood is getting what they weren't able to give us. But now when I look at my story, I realize that there was a, um, a child who felt extremely unsafe. 
I grew up in Brooklyn in the 90s. The streets weren't safe. I grew up in these super large classrooms with mostly impoverished community. The student-teacher ratio of 1 to 30, 1 to 40, where you didn't have – you kind of were unnoticed in a lot of ways. And then in my home, my parents, there was just a lot of dis- disagreement and a lot of tension and a lot of fighting. And um, I don't know that all of my siblings experienced the same thing. They certainly experienced it. I don't know that they internalized it the same way. But for me, maybe just being a very sensitive kid, um, it affected me tremendously. And eventually when I realized, you know, when I talk about, uh, when we talk about addiction, right, the numbing, like what was it numbing? I felt like it was numbing this like valley of depression and then this mountain of anxiety. Like those were the two. And the the sadness that one of the things I was sad, like I was really sad for an eight-year-old boy that chose to go to the home of someone who abused him and that felt safer than being in my own parents home Mm, wow and when i realized that there was just tremendous sadness for that for that boy and just you know what that was and eventually being able to come to terms with it and now looking at it as something that if i was writing the book on my life like if i got to author my own journey the beginning parts of it i would add that chapter in to the stories the abuse and the pain and all of everything else um, and not feeling comfortable enough in, in my home to be able to go there because now it's turned into who I am and I use my story in any way I could to help others. So I'm very grateful for it. But there was that real valley of depression that I had to kind of dig through before I got to where I am now. So then, feeling a lot. So then you've also had a very successful business. So at some point... A lot of that energy got channeled. You know, we can we can we can use our energy any way we want. Um, when when did your business take off? When was which was the first business that you that you launched that was actually successful and took you to the next level? You know, business business is the greatest way to hide an addiction because yep. if we have an area of our life that's semi-functional, we say I'm not an addict because I'm not the guy in the street who's homeless, so I'm definitely not an addict. Uh, for me, I, I started at a really young age. I was I was in rabbinical school. I offered to help some guy in his business. I was spending more and more time in it. And eventually, he gave me 50% of the company. And pretty instantaneously, it started making money. I mean, it started when I was in school making a couple thousand dollars a week, which was amazing. Because, yeah. 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 I was like, whoa, this is, this is pretty awesome. for a kid. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was nice. And then um, a short time afterwards, just it grew um, exactly when my, my, our big break came when the first iPhone was released. That was kind of our, we were doing okay bef- before then, but when the first iPhone was released in 2007, we were able to sell about 25,000 of them. We made a couple million dollars on it and it jump-started our, our business for years to come. So there was this, this ability to hide behind success. Absolutely. And so now I meet this I I I meet this guy, we go into a partnership, hyper successful, boom, I'm a millionaire. And from what you were saying is you came from not a millionaire background. You came from a more impoverished background? Really humble. My I was one of nine kids. I am one of nine. Uh, my dad is a government employee and my mom was a part-time teacher. That being said, um, I have a brother a few years older than me 
who went into business a couple of years before I did, and he's seen a lot of success as well. So I kind of started seeing it right before I started working. I didn't, it wasn't as foreign to me as it was to him. I have a lot of appreciation for my brother to kind of pave the uh, way and respect for his ability to not only pave the way, but to see a way out, right? Sometimes when we're in this way and everyone we know is a certain way, I say, okay, it's never possible. And, oh, if I make six figures, this is great. And this is as, as much as I can make. And, you know, I'm, success, I, I'm successful. And um, my brother still doesn't feel successful. And he's grown a business, to, you know, in tremendous ways. So that hunger and that sense of possibility, that um, maybe a little insanity, that, ability, that thought that he can do something and then actually do it, uh, really helped pave the way for me. And I'm really grateful and appreciative of having that. So I wouldn't say... I know that I had a leg up in some ways having him do what he did. And so now there I'm at. I'm I've I'm at the top of the mountain. I'm killing it. I'm making more money than I ever imagined. And when does the actual sexual addiction take hold? It was always there. It um you know, from when I was probably 12 years old, you know, the catalog starts showing up in my home. And I, you know, obviously I had, I'd been introduced to masturbation at a young age by this, by, by the guy who abused me. And I knew there was something there, right? He had me feel his erection and, you know, help him get there and everything else. So I, I knew there was something there, I, although I didn't totally understand it. But suffice to say, I was quite curious about my own parts after that and what this does. And it started... Um, early on with lingerie sections and catalogs, it increased rapidly uh, when Victoria came through the mailbox to show me her secret. Mm-hmm. And when the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition showed up, it was like, hallelujah, this is my moment. And uh, then the internet. Well, <laughs> yeah, the internet's a whole yeah. other, it's a whole other animal. <laughs> Talk about going from I a think- five-figure business to an eight-figure business fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, the real, the real, the real change. You know, the most traumatic part of my childhood was dial-up internet. The real change was high-speed internet. But um, oh, it's no, it's it's scary. It's scary what the internet does to um, to sex addiction. I can say, even six years ago when I came in, the average age of someone there was in their fifties. And I, I was one of the young guys. I was 28 years old, 27 years old when I came in. It's like, oh, you're one of the young guys. We, we have guys coming in now, 18 years old, 19 years old, 20. There's a, a, a lot of people getting their ass kicked very quickly. I mean, you think about what it took, let's say, 20 years ago to find out where prostitution is in your city. So you're 17 years old, you're 18 years old, and you have no idea where to start. You know, and it. It takes some courage. Which streets am I going to go? What doors am I going to knock on? Now, I mean, this stuff is so available and so accessible that people find themselves, you know, it's like an accelerator for the addiction. So it's, it's fairly dangerous. It's, the, it's fairly dangerous. The internet with the hookup apps, with the, the Tinders and, you know, the, the, there's actual, the, I'm sure, the, the hookup apps and then going online, everything, anything, you just... You Google enough, and eventually, within you know a five mile radius, something comes up, and it's it's become so accessible that I mean, it's if you were to talk about an alcoholic, right? 
I mean, all I got to do is leave my house, go down three blocks, and there's the grocery store, right? And now with the internet, sex addiction is the same thing. In a lot of ways, it's even more, especially if pornography is one of your addictions, which it was for me, where it's 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 right there always yeah. in your hands. It's right there. You know, 24/7. I mean, we're talking on a computer. And it took a long time for me to be able to sit down at a computer and not have my fingers instinctively type in a porn site. So okay. for the first three mm, years, wow. I had all of my computer, like computers, phones, everything locked down because it was just – it was almost an instinct. My fingers just pressed, it was like, boom, and then it's there, and then you're hooked. So it was, uh, it's, it's almost like walking around with an IV of alcohol right there, which is just, just, just turn Terrifying. a, press a button and alcohol's in your system. Yeah. So let's, pornography go is, pornography is a bitch. So let's talk about that. You know, what did it cost you? Because at some point, you know, if I'm going to an SLAA meeting or an SA meeting or, you know, one of the S meetings, Right, something had to get me in there. I had to hit a, some sort of rock bottom. I had to hit some something had to happen. Right. So, what did it cost you? And what was that rock bottom moment like? It was a relationship. It was. I, I realized that not only this relationship. Well, w- one of the um, a, a moment in my recovery was when my girlfriend found out I wasn't honest with her. I wasn't being honest with her. And, you know, I had all my rationalizations and everything else. I had broken up just before I did something, but then I picked up the relationship right afterwards. Like I didn't break up. It wasn't so much about that, but as much as the devastation, the look on her face of devastation, which did two things for me. Number one is I realized how much what I'm doing is hurting another person. But the second thing it did for me, which I guess is maybe a little counterintuitive, is I realized that I matter. So in my mind, no one Mm. gave a shit about me. And she was in a relationship with me for, I don't know, you know, I can give a million reasons why she was in a relationship with me. But one, for example, was, you know, for the money, right? She just, she just wanted to date me because I had a little bit of business success. And a little bit. When I saw how devastated she was, what? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's all relative. Right. <laughs> When I saw how devastated she was by the fact that I, I wasn't mm, faithful to her, yeah, I was like, wow, she, she actually cares she actually about cares. me. She's not faking that wow. feeling. That, yeah. that was shattered glass. And in my mind today, a year and a half ago, uh, we got married. And in my mind today, I have a picture of her when she found this out, that I, I wasn't faithful. And that's one picture. And my other, I have a picture of her at our wedding where she just had this amazing glowing smile. And I say that, you know, if I stay on track, I create that. And if I go off track, I get more of the other. So that, that was one. And uh, addiction starts to get very scary. A moment when it got really, really, really scary for me was there was a certain um, activity without being too graphic, knowing too much detail, that this was kind of um, – Something I said, you know, if anything goes wrong, I can call this person and have this experience. And um, one day in a moment of feeling complete, I don't know, just completely uh, down or whatever else, I escaped there. And it was something that I didn't do often because I had seen in the past how things stopped working. 
I would I would watch porn. I you know I, I started with catalogs that stopped working. I had to upgrade to Victoria's Secret to Sports Illustrated to porn to different kinds of porn and so on and so forth. And here was something that I said, okay, I'm not going to do it too often because I don't know what's next after this. Mm. And I remember feeling completely down, and I went had this experience and it doing absolutely nothing for me. And I went into a total panic. And I said, I don't know what's next. Like, if this doesn't work, what the hell is next? What's after this? And that scared me. After that, I had already been introduced to someone in recovery at that point. I think I'd been to a half a meeting, like I came to 30 minutes. And after that experience, um, I called this guy and said, I told him, you know, what had happened and what my experience was. And I said, just tell me what I got to do. Like, I don't give a shit. I, I cannot stay in this. Is there really a way out of this? And uh, he gave me some, he gave me some recommendations. I still remember the conversation. He told me, I want you to write down your fears. I did not, I didn't even consider myself a fearful person at the time. So I'm afraid of nothing. I had this panic over something that happened, but that was this momentary panic. It wasn't, if you ask me, do I have fears? No, I don't have any fears. What are you, what are you talking about? And then um, he said, those you can repeat as much as you want. Just write down your fears as they come up. But every single day, I want at least three. And then a gratitude, I want you five and five new ones every single day. Because I don't have anything to be grateful for. Uh, well, a couple of things, but five, or it's 150 in 30 days. This is crazy. And th- those were two of the recommendations. Then he said to go to a lot of meetings. And uh, yeah, th- that was a big, that was huge. That, w- that was huge that moment for me when realizing that this place that had given me um, a real sense of peace and safety for a long time stopped working. And I was scared of what, what the next thing would be. What, what would I have to find next? And it gets dangerous fast. Sex addiction is not a, it's not a mild disease. It's, it gets very, very, very dangerous very, very fast. Well, if we look at, and we were talking about this when we were talking about the meditation. If it's a lot of times, if I have the end in mind, for example. So I have the end in mind, which is, okay, if I meditate for 10 minutes or for 15 minutes, this is what I'm expecting to get from it. And if I do it for 30 days, right, I'm hoping that this is what I'm going to get out of it. So I I do the practice. Nowhere is it as intense as these other feelings. But what happens is, is what I've discovered, especially in coaching, is after what's we once you realize is it's never about the thing it's never about the end event it's about everything that happens in my mind and in my body prior to me getting there it's the adrenaline it's the anticipation it's the excitement it's the all these things running through my head of how it's going to feel how it's going to go down how it's going to play out you can this end result could be anything. <clears throat> I talk to my clients about this all the time, right? Tell me about that moment when you make the decision that this is what you're going to do. What happens? Total clarity. All the noise goes away. I haven't taken a drug. I haven't taken a, I haven't changed my state. I, nothing's happened, but all of a sudden the noise stops. The clarity is there. And that's what I'm after. I'm after that space. Does that make sense to you? It makes a lot of sense. In, um, it, in, in sex addiction, where you'll see that is, for example, phone numbers that you never call, but you know that you could if you needed to. And you'll never use it. 
but it's just that, hey, I could call and get that validation that I desperately need if shit really hits the fan. That's a huge one. That's a huge one. And cutting off all of those things is a massive to do. When I shut down my phone, I shut down everything. My, my, what, I, I, if I was working on a PowerPoint presentation, I didn't have access to Google Images. So I'd walk over to a coworker's computer and say, hey, I need, you know, I'm having trouble getting these pictures. Can you screenshot these pictures or save it and email it to me just so I can work on this presentation? I shut down everything. But I had this old dinky phone sitting in my, um, sitting in a, a dresser at home that I never, I never used. But I just knew that if everything falls apart, I got this phone to go to. And that was a big day when I took that phone and gave it to my sponsor. And I said, I'm, I'm done. I never got it back from him, but I'm done. And so it's those little kind of valves that you talk about that we keep open because that's where it is. It's saying, as long as I know that I can get that drink, because that's when it starts. That's when it starts. That's when everything clears up. And I say, I'm yeah. going to go in that. Um, I am. I am. And so the idea is, and this is what I try and do with my clients too. It's like, how do we harness that energy? Because this is what you're after. If you can just change... See, your mindset is thinking, it's the thing that I want. It's the bar. It's the drink. It's the blow. It's the porn. It's the whatever. No. It's everything that happens in your body and in your mind before you get there. I'm excited. I'm motivated. I'm not thinking about paying my bills. I'm not thinking about work stress. I'm not thinking about my wife. I'm not thinking about anything. I'm clear. I'm focused. How can we channel that? So what you're saying is how can I create that feeling without that action? Correct. Meaning if I don't need the action that much, how can I create that feeling? That's power. Interesting. I've never heard heard it quite said like that. uh, That's energy. It's, It's incredible. It's actually dopamine. The minute you think about it and you make the connection and the commitment, I am going to go get a drink, the dopamine kicks in because I immediately, it's like, oh my God, it's going to happen. And now I'm not worried about anything because I've already made the decision that something's going to happen. How do I create anticipation for something else, right? That's just as exciting because you know what? It doesn't matter what you do. I'm going to buy this new car. I'm going to buy, I'm going to go on this trip. I'm going to get this new pair of sneakers. And it's never as exciting. Not always. Sometimes it is. But you know, you, we've all had this experience where it was just not that great as we thought it was going to be. We're going to go to this restaurant because it's got my favorite meal. And then we're going to have my favorite dessert. And then you're like, God, I just remember it being so much better. Because we've, what we've done is we've wired ourselves to get excited. The dopamine is the excitement of. Then I get there and it's not that great. How do I channel that energy effectively so that whatever I put in front of, I recognize it's never about the thing. It's about the journey. It's about going after it. It's about, I got it, now what? I reached the top of the mountain, now what? I've accomplished this goal, now what? And that's how successful people Get to where, I mean, I'm sure you've had that experience. Okay, we got this far, now what? Oh, that's the, that's one of my lows in life, not from an addictive standpoint, just in lows, was hitting a financial goal and seeing it didn't have everything I thought it would. And I was like, okay, so now what? Because these become, you know, I talk about, people talk about like idol worship. Yeah. Right. Like what is idol worship? Like, does any, see anyone like bowing to statues or stuff like that, thinking that this has some sort of power for the most part, that's not what we think about, but 
an addict is true idol worship. Mm -hmm. It's we give these powers yes. to whether it's alcohol or drugs or gambling. We we um, we we put this magical power on whatever our drug choices. This has something that it can give us that's way beyond. You know, money can give you the ability to buy stuff. It can't give you happiness. Can't give you validation. It can't give you any of that stuff. But that's what. But you see, that's the idol worship. That's the idol worship because you, what am I after? I'm after freedom. I'm after luxury and comfort for my family. I'm looking for experiences and memories and what money can buy me. But I, somewhere the wiring gets crossed and it's like, it's the money. So I make this amount of right, money. Exactly. It's like, oh. Well, let's do better. Right, then it Wait, does, let's, it's, it's well, I, didn't, I thought I was going to feel better. No, now go take your wife on a two-week vacation. Now take your kids to Europe. Now go have experiences. Now go donate your time at a, a soup kitchen or at a recovery house. Go create that balance in my life because now I have the luxury financial. I've reached this thing. Now it's time to celebrate. Not time to level up. I said one of my financial goals was actually to give away a certain amount of money by a certain age. And even that wasn't healthy for me because I, I, I wasn't giving always with a purpose. I was giving to, I don't know what, but I, I, was, I was putting something else. I was attaching something more than there should have been to the giving experience. There's giving and there could be meaning to it, but giving a certain dollar amount away is not necessarily meaningful. When I share like I do here and I get messages afterwards from someone and saying, like you said something that totally resonated with me, that's giving in a whole different way and does a lot more than a lot more for me than some big checks I wrote. I have a question for you. Do, do you, um, being in recovery and uh, seeing that, it, you know, you mentioned 16 years, do you see a lot of shame around sex addiction? Absolutely. What, what do you think that's about? It's, it's all... I guess I could. Speak I'm saying within my... the recovery community, I get outside of it. Outside, I totally get it because there's shame around everything. Even an alcoholic, they can drink all the time, but acknowledging that they're dependent on it and they're powerless to it is always a difficult choice, a difficult realization. I, I get that, but for someone recovery, why is that so hard? For me, I'll just speak from my own personal experience. Okay, like for example, I'll just give you one simple example. I have a 16 year old daughter, right? And if I went to her school and somehow I found out that her teacher, her male teacher, was a recovering heroin addict, right, with like 10 years, I'd probably be like, yo, man, psh, right on, N.A., all the way, blah, 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 blah. I find out that the teacher is uh, recovering from sex addiction, I immediately, I go into a different place. It's my humanness that immediately gets scared. And I'm like, oh my God, my daughter's in, you know, and I'll just, and I'm pretty sure, because this is not really a conversation that I've had with too many guys in recovery, because we don't really have a fellowship. It's like sex addiction, sex addiction and kind of being sex offender. Exactly. Oh, interesting. Okay. I hear that. Exactly. Where, where it's like, I know, listen, dude, I mean, I, I, I've been, same, same journey, right? The magazines, the leveling up of the magazines till you get to the internet. The internet, you know, goes from dial-up to high speed. High speed goes from obscure sites 
to everything imaginable on the planet. I know all that, right? How many times do I have that conversation with anybody? I'm having it right now. Can't remember the last time I had it. Right. Right? And so, and I used to run an SLAA meeting here in Costa Rica. I was the one who started it because I was having my own my own struggles with sex addiction when it came to the porn, when it came to massage parlors, when it came to whatever. And I took like a year of celibacy, just like, okay, I got to, I got to reboot, right? Like I, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to do what I didn't do when I first got into recovery was it don't get into a relationship, don't get, you know, so I'm going to do this and I'm going to start an SLA meeting. And I had three people that follow along with me. And after a while, and then as you're going up, you get the Snickers Hey, what are you guys doing? Oh, what are you guys talking about? Oh, can we watch? You know, and so it's it's th- th- just the humanness of it and the ignorance of it behind it also is going to create shame in and of itself for those of us who are trying to, to, to participate in it. And I think the group lasted for maybe a year before somebody got into a relationship and then the other one got into a relationship and then we were just like, dude, I can't be going to these things anymore. I'm in a relationship now. Like, it's okay to go to an NA meeting because I'm recovering from drug addiction and, you know, she knows about all the the blow that I did and, you know, all the, 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 you know, all that stuff. But, ooh, we're not talking about this. I think it's just, at the moment, it's just an inherent kind of like delicate idea of wow um how could this affect my relationship how could this affect my marriage what would they think of me what will other people think about me how will i be judged that's that's where i'll speak from i guess there's an assumption around sex addiction that it turns into humping everything in sight when it's i mean it couldn't be farther from the truth it's just not it's it's like assuming an alcoholic is just um what that means is constantly stumbling stumbling over themselves drunk always and they start the day with it and they're doing it during meetings and in between, you know, conversation. But it's not about that. But to some people, there was a time where alcoholism was looked at as a moral failing, an actual like they used the term moral failing. There was some yeah. something is wrong with you. Fundamentally, there's something wrong with you where you have no control over you. You cannot be trusted. And I think that, that how many years did that go on? And we're having a conversation right now, you and I, that thousands of people are going to listen to. What's the message you want to give to everyone that's listening right now in reference to the shame, in reference to coming out of the darkness, in reference to seeking help? Yeah, I think that um, sex addiction is like any other addiction. I mean, people get powerless to it, but it's not the same thing as being a sex offender. As a matter of fact, I've met very few who that's their story. It's usually, um, you know, in a certain way. I mean, you have, they, they've had a hard time um, doing studies on the effects of pornography on young males because they have been unable to find control groups, i.e. young males which have not watched pornography. So you wonder how many people watching pornography are addicted to it. And I don't know the percentages of it. It's probably, I've seen in relation to drugs, it's, they, they say about 10% of drug users become addicted to it. So you wonder what percentage of pornography users are addicted to it. Let's say it's 
that's a huge, huge number. And that's not the same as the sex offender population. It's just that there's an unhealthy relationship with addictive sexual behaviors, is it? And it's for whatever reason, some people gravitate to alcohol and some people gravitate to sex. I think it's not even about the quantity that someone watches. It's not that I watched porn twice a day or other people maybe watch it more than that and they weren't addicted. It's when did I need to go there and when did I go there and for what reasons did I go there? And when I was going there to numb myself from everyday life, that became my escape hatch. That becomes my addiction. But it does not mean I mean, it's, that's, those aren't you, those aren't the stories that we hear at all. I think that a, the, 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 a sex offender falls into a slightly different category, which is interesting because from my side, um, a large part of my journey has been combating child sex abuse, right? Seeing the experience I went through and right. how many people have abused sexually and combating it very strongly and encouraging, you know, I grew up in a community where it's a very close knit community and reporting things to the police is frowned upon tremendously. So even people who were abused did not go to the police or would not talk to the police. And there are many, many instances where people abused 80, a hundred, 200 kids went for no reason because early on there was enough, not even smoke. There was fire. People knew about this person, but didn't do enough to let anyone else know about it. So I combated that side of it really strongly. But then on the other side, there's the sex addiction. It's a very, very different world. And hopefully more people um, like me who are addicted, who have addictive sexual behaviors, start speaking, speaking, about, speaking about it. And I've been speaking a lot about pornography, and I hope that more do because it's through these stories that we understand them better. It's not the owner of a business who is drunk 24-7. That's the alcoholic. It's the person who comes home and after a fight with his wife can't do anything else but drink alcohol. That's the addict. But in many other areas of their life, they're, they're, uh, they're very manageable. Well, what just came to mind, too, was how to um, really bring some good light to, to what we're talking about here. And this makes, this makes a, a lot of sense, right? Like, you know, there is this, right? Like, that's what kind of came to my mind, right? Because I want to eliminate, number one, reasonable, any sort of doubt. I want to remove any kind of doubt. So I don't know. I don't know. You know, I'm a recovering sex addict. What does that mean? I don't know unless I sit with you and have a conversation. And what, what, how, what were your demons around that, right? And if it's like, well, you know, I was, you know, the porn addiction and, and the massage parlors and the prostitution and like, you know, and I think that there's another element of that too. I think that for many men, we've experienced all of that. So to a certain degree, you bring it up and you immediately start to judge yourself, Oh, but wait a minute, you know what I mean? Like, you know, I've done that too. And, you know, like, does that make me... Well, we've, also all drinking, we've also all drank alcohol, right? I don't, I'm not an alcoholic, but I drink, drink. And right now, I won't get drunk. And one of the reasons I won't get drunk, I'll drink a little bit, but I won't drink much. And the reason is, is because if I drink too much, I will not stay, um, you know, I joke by my third drink, I think I'm, I think I'm single. Nah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but, but that's true. Almost, almost every relapse I've had 
not almost, I believe that every single relapse I've had in the, in the program was connected at some point to alcohol. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I may not have been drunk in the moment, but when did I start thinking about it? was a week before when I was drunk. And then the thoughts started playing. And then as I sobered up, I still wasn't able to think. So now I say, okay, I stay away from, from alcohol. But that's not um, right. I, I, I guess people wonder, is if, if everyone who watched porn was a sex addict, then you have a world full of sex addicts. And if everyone who drank alcohol was an alcoholic, we'd have a world full of alcoholics because for the most part, we all do it. It's, it's really our relationship to it. Do we have an unhealthy relationship to it? Do we go there for something other than sex is meant to deliver? Have we, have we um, ascribed magical qualities to whatever that is? And, and that really that's what it boils down to, right? As recognizing when just like, and, and I'm sure just like in any other 12-step based program, it's like, you know, we, we, we uh, admitted that we were powerless, because we realized that our lives had become unmanageable. At some point, you know, it's one thing to watch porn. It's another thing where, you know, hey, listen, we were just checking your browser. And, you know, the last two weeks, uh, yeah, it's bad. Okay? Like, now all of a sudden my life's become unmanageable. Right? I'm at work and I'm, you know, I come home, I do whatever. You know what I mean? Like, it's like... This is, the, this is a very delicate topic because you, where is the measurement? Where does all that, you know, where does it come into play? And I think that the more times we have these conversations where, wow, you know what? Maybe I'm going to go check out one of those meetings because I'd really like to have this conversation. Like I'd really, it, I feel a little bit safer now recognizing that these are the kind of people that are in there. And, in, and unless we have more conversations about the types of people that are suffering from this type of disease and what exactly what that looks like, then all of a sudden I take some of the pressure off of me and I also take some of the pressure off of the people in, in that group and maybe allow myself to go, hey, listen, I don't know if I am, but I'm here because, you know, here's what's going on in my life, but I feel safe. A hundred percent. And I mean, that's what, that's certainly one of the reasons, reasons I speak. I feel like, um, and I'm, I'm grateful I'm on this podcast because I feel like that we're going to need to see a change in the recovery community before we see a change in the, um, in the world, right? If the oh, recovery community sure. is having a hard time understanding sex addiction, then the rest of the world is certainly going to have a hard time understanding sex addiction because, we're people who, who know addicts, who know what addiction is, and understand that just because someone's addicted to alcohol doesn't mean that they've crossed the line into, into drugs and heroin and other stuff. They can, there are alcoholics who stay there. Is it progressive? Sure. Sure, like everything else is progressive. And is there a possibility that if someone didn't get themselves into recovery, they may at some point cross the line in some ways that they wouldn't like? Sure, everything is possible. Yes. There's a progressive nature of disease. But um, I cannot think of... I cannot think of one person who's shared an offense in the meetings outside of child pornography. I can't, and not to minimize that at all, but I cannot think of one um, of one person who has like that's that the sex offender population is not the same when it comes to meetings. What what's unique about people in general is not that they're alcoholics. If you want to meet alcoholics, you'll go to a bar and see. You'll meet plenty of alcoholics, not all of them, but there are plenty of alcoholics there. What's unique, and this, is, this was a major adjustment for me in recovery, saying that what's unique about us is not that we're sex addicts. What unique, what's unique about us is that we're trying to heal. That's what's unique. 
Absolutely. What's unique about me is not that I've watched a lot of porn. There are plenty of people who've watched a lot of porn. What's unique about us is that we're trying to heal from it. And that's, that's a common denominator that I'm totally for embracing. So today when I use the term and say, hey, yeah, I was addicted to pornography, I hope what people are hearing, and I know that as more and more addicts share their stories, what they're hearing is the, the, the side of recovery and not so much the side of addiction because there's tons of people who are addicted. What they need to hear is that there is hope and that there is help and that these places are safe. That's what they need to hear. For me, the fact that I haven't watched pornography in two and a half years is like mind blowing. Mind blowing. Mind blowing. I did not think this was possible. Because, dude, I'm on the keyboard all day long. I got three keyboards in front of me. You know what I mean? Like, I when you were talking, I was like, "What would my life be like if, like, you know, I had to lock up all my keyboards and like it was like every time I saw a keyboard, I get triggered. Like, wow, that's like." horrifying right so it's like if you're listening to this and your keyboard is triggering you then find your way to one of these meetings because it's it's so different than even having this conversation right now has allowed me to like go wait a minute i'm looking at this thing all fucked up you know like hey you know what there's a whole it's two different worlds it's two entirely different worlds Right from someone who is suffering from a sex addiction and someone who has a predisposition to be some sort of a sexual predator or offender. Yeah, and it's really effing hard to get sober when we attach a lot of shame to behavior. Yeah. So we got to let go of all yeah. shame in order to get to get sober. So that's been part of the journey for me is stripping away all the shame. I had tons of religious shame over. Of course, you know, there isn't religious shame over alcohol. There's tons of at least not. Uh, where I came from, quite the opposite, but there's tons of religious shame oh, yeah. around sex, tons and tons and tons of religious shame around sex. So that was to be able to separate that from it was super important for me. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Okay. So listen, anything, go ahead. Go ahead. I would say anything bad that happened to me, I thought like, okay, this is God punishing me for watching too much porn. Oh, I'm so glad you finished that statement. Cause I mean, I don't know how many people can relate to that right there. It's just this constant, of like, not not only do I have this uphill battle with my addiction, but I'm constantly worrying about how God is punishing me. I spoke to a guy last week. He heard me talk. He came over to me afterwards, and he said, he's like, porn has been kicking my ass. And it's just, just, just started to progress with massage parlors and stuff like that. And I just know this is dangerous. And this guy was, you know, religious and the the full the full boat, the looks and everything. And that was his life outside of this one little area. And he said, you know, a little while ago, a couple of years ago, I had a child um, who was born with some sort of disease, some sort of, I think, heart disease. And he was convinced that yep. this was God punishing him mm-hmm. for it. And I said, dude, if you want to get sober, you're going to have to let go of that. That's not, the, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. I said, I saw what I asked him was, I said, when did you start engaging in, addictive sexual behavior. And he's like, oh, 12, 13 years old, I was introduced to porn. I just started. I said, okay, and what classes were you given on sex? He said, nothing. Zero. I said, okay, you didn't get it from your parents. You didn't get in your school. You didn't get get it from anywhere anywhere else. So you were given a Ferrari engine with no manual and you're going to beat yourself up over it. Said the only way you're going to get sober, you keep down that path. You call me when your wife has left you when you ended up with you know, STDs and everything else under the sun, because that's where those beliefs take you. If you can let go of that religious guilt and let go of the idea that God is punishing you 
for watching too much porn, God understands you. He understands that a 14-year-old with a sex drive should have been given a manual, and you weren't. So now turn it around, but don't have that, that guilt and that shame attached to the behaviors or believe that there's any punishment for it. We'll get you the manual now. We'll work it. Just come to a bunch of meetings, and there's a lot of people who found a way out, me included. Beautiful. So, and I hope he does. I don't know if he will or won't, but I hope he does. No, that's that's fan- It's all about planting the seed. It's all about planting a seed, man. Like it doesn't matter what he does moving forward. That seed has been planted, and when the pain gets great enough, he's gonna yeah. attach himself to that seed. And go, oh my God, I remember this. Right, I remember what Eli told me. Right, and that's 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 it. That's as that's as far as our responsibility is, unless they come and say, "Hey, can you help me?" Right, and then we, oh yeah, then you, then you can take them to the yeah. next level. All right, so let's start shifting because you know we're already on an hour, and I really like to tap into like what your life is today and the changes that happened based like after after you got into recovery. Now you know you're married and all this stuff. Um, so so here's some questions that I like to ask. My um, guests, what as a coach, right? Everyone's got a story. People have been telling themselves stories their whole lives. A lot of times, it's just like things I picked up from childhood, right? So I can't do this because uh, once I achieve this, I'll be happy. I can't do this because I won't do this because. So, what were those limiting beliefs? Those stories that you had that were disempowering, and what is it that you believe now? So one was this belief that I was weak, just somehow, you know, the, well, I mentioned the abuse earlier and, um, I was a, a small kid, whatever I'm not now I'm over six feet, 200 pounds, but for whatever reason, I was, a, I was a small kid, small, my class. And, uh, the way the abuse happened was actually a wrestling match that he won pinning me to the bed and then sexually abusing me. So there was this belief in my head that stayed there for a while. Not only that, that kind of added to it. That was another example of where I was weak, that I just was weak and could be overpowered by others. So anytime something didn't go in my favor or I thought didn't go in my favor, there, it just reinforced this belief that I was weak. Another belief, which was very pressing, was that I could, people can reach out to me and they can count on me for help but I cannot count on anyone. No one will ever come through when I need them. I can't depend on anyone for anything ever. And when anything, the slightest thing can trigger that belief. And that was one of the most powerful, um, addictive, like rage attacks is probably the best I could say. Like the triggers was, you know, someone can send me an email. Hey, can you donate to my cause? And a thought would go through my head if I wasn't in a good space saying, yeah, they'll ask, they'll ask me and I'll come through. But if it was the other way around and I asked them for something, they would never come through. And boom, I'm off. I need to act out. So that, that was a very, 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 very powerful one. So how did you reframe that? I just realized it's bullshit, <laughs> you know? I, um, I think... You know, for, for, for me, a, a lot of it was going to meetings, hearing people talk, hearing people say my thoughts, and seeing them get past it. One of the most powerful moments for me was um, seeing a guy who said that his, he was abused by his dad. And the story doesn't totally connect, but it, it shifted something in what's possible. This guy was raped by his dad at five years old. 
and I was abused and I know the pain of abuse, I don't understand incest. I mean, that's a whole different level of abuse. I mean, only imagine what someone goes through and not only incest, but their dad, like even an uncle is tough for a cousin, but their dad is like, holy shit. And he said in a meeting, he says, my dad has passed. I've forgiven him. He was doing the best he could with what he had. And I love that man. And I was like, whoa, that is, that was mind blowing to me. So just seeing how someone could get past things was really, really amazing. And also having the support, that was one, like that was a massive aha moment for me, just seeing that. And what I really love about that is that people talk about, you know, therapy and reading just the right book and everything else. This guy, I don't even know if he's homeless. I barely know anything about the guy. He shared this he shared this observation in a meeting once and it blew my head like right off my shoulders. I was like, wow, if that's possible, what can't I get over? That was one specific to this is just seeing that within recovery, I had a lot of people that I could support, that I could rely on. I'd call them. They'd answer, ask to meet. They wanted to meet with me. They didn't send me a bill afterwards. I was like, oh, hey, (laughs) this is pretty cool. You could depend on people, not overly, right? So it's not like if they don't come through, like this whole system is BS because that's too much also where we say we need so we need everything from one person and then we allow that story to replay itself saying that by and large people are good and people want to help one another and that's that's what i believe today yeah you kind of you you put yourself with the right circle of influence with the right people and you allow yourself to move through these limiting beliefs by practicing right a little bit of vulnerability and allowing these people that, you know, maybe these guys I can give a chance. Maybe these guys aren't trying to take advantage of me. Um, and then it starts to, starts to shift. But I think a lot of it also is like there's a recognition like, hey, you know what? I'm not weak. I'm strong, right? I'm resilient. I've come right. through, the, I, I've, I've come through this other side. I didn't talk side. about that belief. But when I saw what I, I overcame and uh, probably where that belief shifted for me, was when I eventually confronted my abuser. Mm. It took me five years to get this meeting, and I talk about the story a lot in different contexts. I have a, 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 a story on, on YouTube. I have one if someone Googles my name. I go into detail on how I eventually got that meeting and what it meant for me. But seeing that, hey, he was the weak one in that. I left that meeting saying I'd rather be in my shoes with my memory of being abused than in his shoes of winning that wrestling match and abusing someone else. I'm not the weak one. This guy's got much bigger problems than I have. And that was, uh, that shifted it majorly, that interaction. Beautiful. That, that, you know, and I've, there's been a few, I've had a few people on the show that have talked about just that moment of going to their abuser and saying, you know what? I forgive you. Or, Hey, I know what you did. And you know, what, however you chose to, to handle it, the bottom line is it wasn't for them. This was, oh, it was for me, for you, 100% all for you. As a matter of fact, like you say, you leave their hole and you, God knows what, you know, what, what shambles this person's in because hurt people hurt people. So mm-hmm. what are they living with, right? How, what kind of pain and trauma that at some point, you're able to shift, and you've, you've become this amazing person that, who is resilient and was strong, who's accomplished, and now you can actually have some compassion for someone who is just broken. I had specific demands for him in my case. I wanted a lie detector test. 
Uh, I asked him, has he done it to anyone else? He said there was one person at the same time. He was a teenager when he did it to me. So that is possible that someone does it as a teenager and doesn't go back to those behaviors as an adult. It's unlikely as an adult, but it is possible as a teenager. So I, I wanted a lie detector test. So that was true. I also wanted a full psychological evaluation, and I wanted him to contribute $500 towards my therapy. And when he did all those three things, and then he asked me, can I give you any more money towards your therapy? He, he felt so bad. I, I, through the conversation, he felt wow. really, really bad. Actually turned, because we had a third person in the, in the meeting, he turned to them and he said, um, am I a monster? Can I go b- back home to my kids? So that was like a huge shift that comment. And then when he turned to me and he said, Ellie, any way I can make this right? He said, I, um, can I pay you more towards your therapy? And I said, I have to think about that. And I thought about it a few minutes later. I said, I don't, I don't need anything more than $500 is sufficient. And those, it just, it just shifted. I got what I wanted. I won quote unquote. Um, and I, I didn't feel, I felt powerful after that. Dude, the shift, the shift is, I mean, you, you, you run, cause we, we run around with stories, man. We run around with stories. Yes. We have these horrible, we're playing these scenarios through in our heads about what is, what happened, what happened after, what's going on. And then you're faced with the reality. You're like, oh my God. Like, and, and all of a sudden it, it allows you to add another layer of confidence, another layer of relief, another layer of forgiveness, right? And, and this person actually being in a position where they're like, what can I do? And really, like, what can I do to feel better? Because I feel like shit. I feel like... I, I love I, that you keep saying, I love that you keep saying stories because, you know, when you introduced me, you mentioned Mic Drop, which this is a recent initiative I started, which is bringing people's stories out and training them how to tell a story properly. So we have, we have a coach who's a former Broadway star, news reporter, who's trained other coaches, and we train people on how to tell their story. One of my favorite mic drop stories, quote unquote, is we go into companies often and we do it as team buildings where we teach them, hey, so tell your story. And a lot of the influence is obviously from recovery and anyone in recovery understands where the idea started. So this guy had this, this one guy had this tremendous resentment towards his dad. And he almost wanted to take the stage and like just rail at his dad, like the message from, well, that's, you know, just rail at his dad. And what the coach said is, hey, that, that's not a proper story. A proper story starts with background. Tell me about you. Tell me about your dad. Tell me the struggle that you went through and tell me the realization. Tell me what you can teach us. Tell me what we can learn from you. This is not a rant. We're going to get up and say how to fix the world or fix your dad. I mean, that's that's not for here. That's not classic story arc. That's not classic story structure. So under the veil of classic story structure, this guy started um, digging further in to how to give proper background and context to his story and the eventual realization. And what was amazing about his story was his dad, what, his real resentment for his dad was that his dad was a workaholic who made no time for him. And the pivotal moment was his dad owned a, a pizza store where his dad said to him uh, when he came in to buy a p- to grab a pizza for him and his friend, so after you finish eating, you got to work for a couple hours to make up for that. And he's like, do I mean nothing to you? That I, I, I can't just grab a piece of pizza with my friend that I need this. But when he gave the background that his dad was born to parents who were both deaf and mute, to extreme, extreme poverty and fought like hell to get out of there and then created a life for his children. 
it was almost like he got up on stage and almost said like, I'm standing on my dad's shoulders. I couldn't be talking about work-life balance without my dad because he fought from the pits of hell to be able to give my family a decent life. So of course he had an imbalance when it came to work. And now I'm here to be able to write that, but that's only thanks to him. And that ended up being his speech and his message. And I just wondered, in ter- like, how many sessions of therapy would that have taken to come to that realization when sometimes just through looking at the story someone's telling themselves and the story someone's going to deliver about themselves and just adding more context, just say, okay, get, go a little further back, go a little further forward. Tell me how I can be inspired. What did you learn? What did you gain? And they say, oh, so these things that I like about myself, I can't separate that from my story some of those things. And it's like, okay, this, it, and it becomes a much healthier viewpoint than some of this, like my dad was a jackass. Well, because, right. Because I'm either, I'm either playing a victim role and then there's just no, what'd you learn from this? Right? Like it's his fault, you know, end of story. Can't drop the mic there. Right. Or it, it, it can't be where I guess, there has to be some sort of an epiphany, some sort of a light bulb moment where what I'm learning here or what I've learned in my life, I can now teach to you through this adversity. And that's what I've been loving about doing my podcast for all these years, right? Because at some point, right, there's the beginning, there's the middle and the end. And at the end, we find right. recovery. And now we're talking about like, what is your life now? And, and what stories were you telling yourself before? And what stories do you tell yourself now? What is it that you believe about yourself, right? Because really, at the end of the day, I tell people now, right, if you want to stop drinking, stop thinking, right? Because if, if you're not thinking, right, that's all that triggers you. There's nobody punching you or molesting you or whatever the case may be right now. But if the thought comes in, that's what's, it's a thought, Right, And it's an overwhelming thought. How do I channel? Again, it's all about channeling that energy. How do I create an empowering moment Right, where now this is the reason why I can do this. This is the reason why I can get in front of you and deliver this. This is why I have accomplished this. I launched this podcast. I started a coaching program. You know, I have an amazing relationship with my wife. Right, I've raised my daughter this way. Like, <clears throat> If these horrible things hadn't happened to me, I wouldn't have learned how to become the opposite. I wouldn't have learned how to power through these. I wouldn't learn how to be resilient. 100%. And it's these, it, right. this and is then, what it's all about. And when it's looked at in the context of that, like a whole story and you say, okay, I can't separate it. No, I can't completely One separate it. I got some amazing gifts. And that's right. So that's, uh, I, that's what, that's why I love stories. I love that you keep going back there because stories, stories are everything. It's the meaning we give to facts. That's what a story is. There are facts that happen. And the story is the, the dots that we connect. And 90% of the time, the problems that we have in our head are the stories that we're telling ourselves about it. The story is that I'm weak. Prove it. Prove Correct. I, I, if, if I was asked to prove that on paper, I couldn't prove that I'm weak. Look at all the things that I've accomplished. I'm not weak. But there was a story in my head that I allowed to keep playing in myself. And when I believed it, I had to act out. Drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, man, this, we, we keep, this is an amazing interview. All right, I'm just absolutely loving this interview. Um, so, but I want to get to these closing questions. So I'll start. To, we'll keep. We'll keep winding down. So my next question here for you is: uh, There's this. There's this very famous quote or speech by Tony Robbins, where he talks about 
burning the boats, right? If you want to take the island, you got to burn the boats, right? And we've all had this moment in our lives where we said, not one more day, not one more hour, not one more minute, not one more second. I'm not going to tolerate this in my life anymore. So what was that pivotal moment in your life when you turned it all around, when you said, this is it, I'm not going to take one more minute and I'm turning it all around? Yeah, some of it is, is where I discussed um, causing another person pain and then seeing how I'm going to have to keep going with the disease. And I said, I'm done. But I've had a few of those in recovery. You know, um, it's, not, it's not an uphill climb. There were times where I thought I had it and I say pride comes before the fall. And I said, okay, I got this now. I'm cruising. I can dial back on the meetings. I can dial back on this. And I got myself in trouble again and found myself in a situation where I said, hey, I, I, I keep going with I, – I know where my thinking is at and I know when it's not good. And I keep going with this. I'm losing my family. And um, there were a few of those. I don't know that I can point to specifically like you know, one aha moment. Even in terms of the healing process, sometimes I'm amazed. Like I look back now. I'm like, holy shit. Like I've been away from porn for two and a half years. It wasn't this this moment where I knew, okay, now I'm now I'm good and I can cruise. It's sometimes looking back and saying, wow, I don't believe that story anymore. Of um, the I am weak had a pivotal moment, but the other story of everyone can get something from me, but I can't depend on anyone else. That didn't have a specific moment in time where it stopped stopped being true for me. It was one day I looked back and said, hey, this is pretty it's pretty amazing. Beautiful, beautiful. And it's, again, these are these wonderful opportunities, right? These wonderful opportunities that when it comes and you recognize that you're so much, you're months, sometimes years away from something that you thought was always going to be with you and was always going to be something that was going to hinder your progress, now is just simply something that fuels you moving forward. Recognizing that when the thoughts come in, it's like, whoa. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is, I know where this is going and not one more second. I'm, I'm out of this. I'm going to make a call. Right. I'm going to, I'm, I'm, there's no way this is not going to jeopardize my family. This is not going to jeopardize, this is not who I am anymore. When I called that guy who I met in a meeting, that, I mean, that was our conversation. I said, You tell me what I got to do. I said, I said, You tell me I got to stand on my head, figure out how to spit wood and nickels. I don't care. I am not going down this path. And if you tell me there's a way out, I am in 100%. And it took what one of the things he said to me, he said, is that this, some quote like the sweet willingness of desperation or something like that. The gift of desperation. That willingness that comes with desperation is, you know, sometimes I speak to people and they kind of want out. I'm saying, like, that's, that's not enough. This problem doesn't go away with a couple of meetings, a couple of books. This, this goes away with taking everything in your life and saying it's all negotiable right now. And you tell me what I get to keep and be sober, but everything is negotiable. The job, the family, the car, like everything is negotiable. I, I'll, I'll use that a lot too, where it's like, where are you at from one to 10? How badly do you want to stop drinking? Oh, dude, badly like a seven. Seven. <laughs> Badly, huh? Yeah, you're not. There. You're not there yet. You're not there yet. And we're what we're gonna do is we're gonna play tug of war. 
Because when there's three spaces to fill, right? When it's not, you know, from one to ten, how desperate you want to stop drinking, I don't hear twelve. You know, that's when I know. Somebody says, I remember one guy's like, I'm like, how badly you want to stop dr- smoking from one to ten? A hundred. I'm like, let's go. Right. Let's let's go. Let's go. I've right. never asked it. I've never asked it in that way. I I love that. that. Just to put a number on it, like yeah. tell me where you are. I'm going to use that. Because when they're in pain, when they're in pain, like true pain, and they're desperate, it's it's at least it's at least a ten, if not like some super exaggerated. Dude, it's twenty. Let's go. I got you. I got you. All right. So tell us about an aha moment in your life when you realized you were now moving in the right direction. I think one of um, my most powerful kind of character defects um, is jealousy and just seeing, you know, you see someone play basketball better than you. It's like, oh, man, I wish I was like that guy. You see someone richer than you. It's like, man, I wish I was like that guy without paying attention that the guy who I'm jealous of for being richer can't play basketball as good as me. And the guy who I'm jealous of playing basketball isn't as rich as me. Right. I'm so it's just this, these comparisons that go all over the place and uh, jealousy overtook me a lot of ways. And then at a certain point saying like, Whoa, that's not there. Like I can be happy for someone else who's doing well. Like, I don't feel that anymore. Even with my wife, there was, she would tell me she called her brother for advice. This felt like a stab in the heart. It's like, Whoa, whoa. it's like, you think some guy somewhere has better advice as anything that I do. And it felt like shit. And it took me a while to acknowledge it, but now it's just not there. It's just not there. What's funny is sometimes the conversation goes the other way. My wife is like, I don't think you're possessive enough. I don't think you're, you know, you're not like, do you still like me? Because, you know, I'm not home at 12 and you're not even asking me too many questions of where I was. So I, when I saw that, I'm like, whoa, this stuff is starting to change. I, I, it, it wasn't a feeling I chose to be jealous. It wasn't anything I knew what to do with. And then to turn around one day and say, hey, I don't feel this so intensely anymore, and I rarely feel it, that's, that's pretty cool. That's really cool. I love that. So what would you tell her when she said that? I just smiled. No, I just smiled. I, I, I don't know how seriously she meant it. No, no, no. But you see, I, 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 I kind of see yeah. it and I'm, I'm kind of picturing the moment, you know, and I'm kind of like almost picturing it myself. I'm like, it's because I, I trust you ex- explicitly, my love. Right? I trust you 100%. Right? That's how much I love you. Like I'm already in my, right, right in the, I'm already in the movie script. <laughs> no, I was, <laughs> I, I was kind of thinking of myself in that moment. It's like, wow, she's right. She's like 100% right. Yeah. I used to get on her about everything. Yeah. Early in our relationship, everything was a big deal. And now, now who'd you go out with? Who'd you see? She told me she saw Paul McCartney once. <laughs> and she said it with a little bit too much excitement. And I felt, I felt like shit. I felt like less than like, Now in hindsight, I'm like, it's freaking Paul McCartney. She can be excited that she saw Paul McCartney. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean anything less of me. But <laughs> oh, fabulous! Man. I love it. I love it. It's too good. All right, what what books would you recommend? Is there one particular book you would recommend, or a couple books you re- recommend to our listeners? In terms of recovery, one of my favorite, a few of my favorites. Um, so I'm reading a book now called "Chasing the Scream" by Johan Hari, which I think is amazing. 
um, and it talks about the start of the war on drugs, which is interesting. And he goes into a lot of stuff related to addicts, which is really cool. Another one of my favorites, which I've recommended a lot, is In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts yep. by Gabor Mate. Mate. Mm-hmm. So love that book. Um, uh, the, the Road Less Traveled is another favorite mm-hmm. of mine. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of constantly searching those maps. And then one uh, which was really important for my recovery, you know, growing up Jewish and hearing a lot about God in recovery and trying to figure out how I can reconcile the God that I kind of was introduced to growing up with the God in recovery when I know there's a lot of Christian influence and say, okay, so how much of this can I reconcile without bringing in so much of my old Jewish baggage? There's a book written by a rabbi. His name is Shays Taub called God of Our Understanding, God of Our Understanding, where he attempts to reconcile Judaism with um, the 12 steps. And uh, I love that. That was really meaningful to me in my recovery. Book. So probably those four, as far as recovery is concerned. So the, the last one is the God of our understanding. God of our understanding, and there it's written by a rabbi, Rabbi Shays Taub. Awesome. And it's a really easy read. It's great, and uh, for me that was really important. If uh, you know, there are a lot of uh, trying to reconcile those two could be challenging, especially for someone with my background who heard a lot about God growing up Perfect. and has to. Excellent. Find another Excellent. one. Good, because that's it. There you go. The other ones have been recommended, and that's one I was like, oof, a new book, not recommended. But again, it's like what we need, right? More information, more resources, especially if you're Jewish, right? And so here's, yeah. here's a take on 12 steps. Ooh, I'm in. I'm in. Beautiful. All right. Yeah, what, there's, actually one more, there's actually one more which I want to mention. Bring it. Because the guy claims anti-12 steps. Once you mention that, he claims to be anti-12 steps. So I said, wait, let me read his book. Uh, his name is Lance Stodes, Breaking Addiction. Um, and I really liked his description of addiction, and I got a lot out of the book. And I'm pretty certain that if he and I sat down and had a conversation, the problems he thinks he has with the 12 steps, he doesn't have with the 12 steps. But that's, you know, he's made a career bashing the 12 steps and sold books as a result. So I don't see him changing his mind anytime soon. But the book, Breaking Addiction, Lance Stodes, I thought it was pretty good. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's the second one. All right. So we got two new ones in there. Another one. Love yeah. it. Love it. All right. So what is your personal success formula or blueprint for success? Uh, give struggle meaning. Give pain meaning. All of that stuff. Just find, um, find the meaning in it continuously is pretty much the only way I know how. I almost think that an addict – in a lot of ways, you know, you really hear of someone who like, I had a perfect life. Everything was great. Great. Dan, I just had this habit of drinking over and over. I had this problem, habit of acting out pretty much uniformly. There's been a struggle in childhood, a struggle with low self-esteem, a struggle with shame and so on. So, which means a lot of pain. And I almost feel like an addict has crossed a certain threshold of pain, which is why the only solution is a spiritual solution. And the spiritual solution to me is finding meaning and experiences and say, hey, this didn't, ha- this didn't happen for nothing. And where I can't find meaning, I create meaning. As an example, um, I, I was able to find meaning in an addiction. I was able to find meaning in my abuse. I was not able to find meaning in the fact that it was a sex addiction and a porn addiction. That was shameful to me. So I said, you know, I'm going to create meaning there. 
I'm going to speak about sex addiction. I'm going to speak about porn addiction. And yeah, might it take me down a couple of notches with some people? Sure. But other people will be able to be helped from it. And I can get a message from someone that says, hey, you've given me enough hope to start my journey of recovery. Then I say, hey, there was meaning now in the fact that it was sex addiction and alcohol addiction. This was alcohol addiction. I never could have helped this specific person. So find the meaning in the struggle always forever. That's my journey. That's my blueprint. Dude, I want to name this episode Find the Meaning in the Struggle. I mean, that is powerful. That's what it all boils down to. All of it. Like you, can, you can just shrink it down to that beautiful statement, right? If we can find meaning in anything that happened to us, right, it will, it's what fuels us. It's what fuel, but it can also be the thing that completely destroys us. Because I want to hold on to the victim suit. I want to hold on to that pain. Oh, sure. I want to seek significance through weakness and helplessness. Instead of channeling that energy, again, we're talking about channeling that energy, or that hero inside of you and going, you know what? What was the meaning behind this? And who did I become because of it? You know, and who am I able to help and impact today because of this? So if you, if you named it finding the meaning, it wouldn't totally capture what I said, um, because often it's creating the meaning that's so important. I'd say I'm not a silver lining guy. A silver lining person, someone who looks at the cloud and finds a silver lining and says, this is okay. This is much more of a dig for the gold than a find, this, find it. And you see it sometimes. You see, for example, someone who loses a child to let's say to a drunk driver, someone loses a trial to a drunk driver, God forbid. And there is no silver lining in that story. There is none, zero. But what they could do is create the gold from the story by going out there and perhaps championing laws that protect other people, bringing awareness to it, creating charities and foundations and creating gold and meaning in that struggle versus sitting and hypothesizing about a silver lining. That's not finding it. That's digging for it. It's just a little bit Different. So it's really creating the meaning in the struggle when necessary. It's it's awesome. <laughs> I'll take them both. It's powerful, powerful. It's grabbing. I love it. I love it. All right. What is the best advice you've ever received? Um, not to focus on why and why things work. If if it works, just freaking do it. <laughs> you know, I've seen people come to. And, and try to figure out, you know, what's going to help if I do my fourth step like this? Do I have to do it written? Do I have to come to this many meetings? Do I have to share my story? Do I have to do a third step? And it's like, man, you know, someone said this. There's no chapter in AA called Why It Works. There's one called How It Works, but none about why it works. And anyone that goes in there is just like, and I was there at the bit. I'm trying to figure out reading every book on addiction and every book on recovery I can find in the anti 12 step books and everything. But early recovery, I had 20 books piled next to my bed and I just kept reading, just trying to figure out like, why would this work? How do I know this is going to work better than therapy? And then one day just, man, if someone else is there and this is what they're telling me they got there and I have reason to believe that that's true, I'm just going to give it a shot. And I'll try it out for a long enough time to see if it works. And if it doesn't, then I'll stop trying. But if, if it does, I don't have to figure out why. Correct. Beautiful. Beautifully written. Okay. And finally, 
What is one parting piece of wisdom you would like to share with our listeners? Don't be so humble. You're not that great. Um, Golda Meir, the, uh, the first female prime minister of Israel said this. Don't be so humble. You're not that great. And what, what I love about that is for a while I thought about not sharing my story. What do I have to offer anyone? My addiction didn't take me to as dark places as some other people. I, you know, I, I, wasn't, I don't have amazing recovery you know, stories where I was held up at gunpoint or in prison for 27 years. I don't have amazing war stories. What right do I have to share? So we could have all these ideas, but what I found is other people sharing their stories, and it could be in the most um, unassuming ways, sometimes people who barely speak English, and there's just this nugget that they say that turns things around for me forever. And I'll give you an example of one. There was a guy who came, I don't think he came to more than 10 meetings, this guy. He was a young guy about my age. He was gay and he shared his story. And in his story, he said something about um, being, I guess, at a gay club and people taking turns having sex with him. And afterwards, leaving that interaction, and not only people taking turns having sex with him, but people chanting like, I guess, you know, around them also. And I was thinking as a straight person, oh, and then afterwards, he um, went home and watched porn. And he was like, I just had this sexual experience that was like mind blowing. And then I went and watched porn. So obviously there's never enough. And I was listening, to, I'm, I'm sitting there, it's early recovery for me. And I'm thinking like, oh, maybe because I didn't do this and I didn't try this variant and I didn't do it with this, you know, whatever it is, that that's why it wasn't enough. And what can I get out of my system before I really commit to this program? And this guy says this story and I'm like, as a straight guy, I will never have that experience in my life. Just never going to happen that I'm going to take turns sleeping with people and there's going to be another 30 chanting, you know, you know, go, go, go. That's never going to happen. And this person has had it. And he's telling me from his own mouth that it wasn't enough. He had that and he went home and watched porn. It's never going to be enough for me. And this guy, I guarantee, I don't know where the hell he is now. He can be, you know, dead from his addiction because I haven't seen him in meetings, but he changed my life because when he said that, it just let go of another lie. So the parting piece of advice is share your effing story. You have no idea who is going to help move. You may not be that articulate. You may not have the craziest war story. You may not have anything, but there's just something that can shift something in someone else. When they hear your story, they can relate and they can resonate with, and it will resonate with them in a way that will move them forward in ways that therapy and all the greatest business minds and uh, self-help minds won't be able to please 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 share your story and it's the same reason i started mic drop it's let's bring stories out there i'm always shocked afterwards when we have an event and people share their story at the different feedback from different people and saying this person said this and it was so right on he said my thoughts she said my thoughts and i was like wow that's freaking awesome let's just get stories out there so don't be so humble you're not that great share your story and with that we dropped the mic <laughs> <laughs> seriously man amazing amazing story thank you for being vulnerable thank you for sharing with us thanks for all the stories this interview was spectacular awesome i really enjoyed it thanks so much this is the first uh one of that i've ever done on on recovery and really different and really exciting to talk to someone you know kind of of the same mind we so, are brother we are so much. thanks for the opportunity all right, folks, we've now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, pura vida. 
Pura Vida, one of my favorite places in the world, Costa Rica. Thank you for joining us today on the Recovery Revolution Podcast. For more information about the podcast, to access the show notes, join us in the Recovery Revolution, or to learn about one-on-one coaching with me, then go to www.omarpinto.com. Make sure to check out the website or schedule a free consultation with me today. It's time to join the Recovery Revolution.